On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. The wait is over. We are back to another Thousand and One Nights episode. Uh, We've been getting a lot of people that are very excited that we're doing this Thousand and One Nights project. So much so that they were a little disappointed when we had two episodes in a row without talking about the Thousand and One Nights. But here it is. We've got it. This will be starting on the first few nights of the Thousand and One Nights. And uh, I think it's been great. I'm, I'm glad that people are as excited about it as... We are. We've had a lot of people writing in and engaging with us and talking about how, you know, they love that we're doing this and just talking about the podcast as well. Um, and sometimes people ask us, like, you know, what's the best way that we can support you? I know I have people that have reached out to me saying that. And, you know, just a reminder of two things that you can do to support this podcast and help us continue to do these throughout the foreseeable future is one, you can just share us with your friends. If there's an episode that you think that they might be interested in, let them know. Yeah, that that is actually the number one way that podcasts grow their audience is through friends recommending a podcast. And so if you are enjoying yourself, definitely share us with your friends. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing for us, I think. You know, we just like sharing this with as many people as possible. That's the part about podcasting that like really excites me is knowing that people are out there listening and then writing back and engaging with us. But also, you know, leaving us a review on iTunes or whatever app that you use to listen to us is also very helpful to have people find us organically. Um, And then finally, just a reminder that we did start a Patreon a few months ago. And we've had lots of people sign up for that, and it's been great. It helps cover, you know, the costs of producing the podcast and materials for doing research. So it's allowed us to do things that we weren't able to do before a lot more comfortably. So if that's something you'd be into, we have the Patreon that you can, one, feel good about supporting us, but we have bonus episodes up there once a month. We have outtakes from all of our episodes, which are, like, pretty hilarious because we go off on wild tangents or we no speak good and have to say the same thing 20 times in a row before we finally get it right. So, you know, again, if you're one of those people that's looking for a way to support us and give back, those are a few things that you can do, but we're just happy you're here. So thank you for joining us. And I'm looking forward to learning more about the thousand and one nights. Yep. And speaking of people who are writing in, we had somebody write in a question, which is absolutely perfect. So I was going to share it. It said, in the first episode, you said that some people believed the tales were originally arranged to serve an overarching narrative purpose to show how Shahrazad used the stories to change the king's mind about women. Can you elaborate? Um, And my sister, as my sister would always say, um, show your work. <laughs> and anytime somebody's like, like scholars have said, she's like, yeah, who are these people? <laughs> and quote and quote them. Yeah. And this is actually a great question to answer before this episode, because we're going to be kind of speaking to this point when we talk about why this story that we're going to be telling tonight comes first. So the information that I'm going to be talking about right now, I gathered from the Arabian Nights, a companion by Robert Irwin, and also a paper that was published by Mawson Mahdi, 
1984 called Alf Layla Walayla, uh, which means the thousand nights. So Mahsin Mahdi was a professor of Arabic at Chicago and then Harvard University. Mm. And he inherited this project that he wrote. I said a paper, I think, before, but it was like a two-volume book of research. So (laughs) a paper is really like underselling the magnitude of the project (laughs) that he he worked on. Uh, But so he inherited a project of trying to reconstruct what would be considered an archetypal manuscript of The Thousand and One Nights. And so what that means is that these scholars wanted to try and create a stemma, which is kind of like a family tree of sorts for the Knight's manuscripts to try to figure out what the earliest versions of these stories written down would have looked like. So a family tree is kind of like, you know, you've got you and then your ancestors are the branches going out a stemma is but a stemma is kind of like the opposite of that and a stemma is a it's kind of like a family tree for literature except what you're starting off with are all of the descendants of an original work so all of the handwritten copies that like had to be made all the manuscripts that got formed yeah and so what you're trying to do is figure out how which ones came first which ones were copied from which other ones and you look for little evidences inside of the the works themselves the copies themselves to see matching pieces and one of the things that helps them match it up the best actually are like typos Uh are interesting uses of words if they see it reoccurring in multiple Newer editions, they know, okay, this mistake, this typo was being recopied over and over again Yeah, from an earlier version that had like a typo or a mistake. And so they right. are able to slowly go back. So this for Masin Mahdi was like just a painstaking, like word yeah. by word, all of these different Gosh. like versions that are like some of the earliest versions that he was looking at. That would be so time consuming yeah and just like difficult i can't imagine someone being so passionate about a subject to go through and do such a thing so it was like man props to them <laughs> yeah and he he worked on this project from 1959 until 1984 so that's 25 Jeez. years he was working on this and so we talked in the last episode a little bit about how fragments of the nights were either found written down or mentioned in books going back into like the ninth century AD. So they had like little evidences that obviously the knights had been written down a long time ago, but no, like extant copies. Exactly. Um, And so, but what they wanted to do was to do kind of like a textual analysis of the work. They needed to understand kind of what, the earliest writings of it would have looked like minus, you know, typos or narrative style or even stories that got added to kind of the more recent editions. So they were, you know, working backwards, trying to like establish, you know, how these came first. 
So Ma Sin Mahdi was able to bring the stemma or that family tree back to two sources. One was a Syrian source and one was an Egyptian source. And this information will mean more in a second. So maintain that in your mind <laughs> that there was the Assyrian branch of stories and then there was an Egyptian branch of stories. So 25 years of his life, Masan Mahdi was working on this and he was able, once he got back to those two branches, to kind of create a theoretical mother source for the Knights. And a quote from the Arabian Nights, a companion, it says, according to Mahdi, the mother source was produced in Syria sometime in the 13th or early 14th century. The mother source manuscript was in turn based on an earlier version of the Knights composed in Iraq, but Mahdi did not think it profitable to speculate on what form this Iraqi version would have taken because he couldn't, he can't move beyond the source material that he has, right? Yeah. So he was like, okay, we know that the stories were written down because of source material, little fragmental source material that we have. We know that there was an earlier edition in Iraq, but he couldn't go back any further with what we currently have written down. Mm -hmm. And so what we currently have written down, the oldest source he believes is from Syria. So once he had established this mother source, it basically brought it back to the kind of level of what it would be as a medieval text. So it could be examined and looked at by Arabists that would be able to use it to look at the language, the style, and the narrative techniques that were being used mm -hmm. and employed in the Knights, which that's that's incredible that, yeah. that he was able to bring it back and that, you know, there's now something that we can look at and say, okay, this is what the medieval text looks like. This is like what it was. But here is where there are some problems. <laughs> so when we read something like Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, we can sit and talk about the author's intents all day long, and we can agree on some basic facts about it, which is basically what we did in... <laughs> in our episode about Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. <laughs> yes. Where it was we... more a literary analysis than it was like a folklore discussion. Exactly. So it was a little bit about like, oh, the culture that he was writing it during, but it was about what him as a single author was intending to write about a subject as opposed to like what a culture had, you know, in the conversation about yeah. a topic. It's a much different story because it's like it's not so much that they're intending to convey a specific message like intentionally, but it's more like why would this be the type of thing that group of people would be talking about? Exactly. Yes. So one of the basic facts that you can agree on when you're looking at Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen is that Hans Christian Andersen was the author. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't he didn't have different people that were writing like different parts. So The Snow Queen, it's seven different parts of a story. And we don't have to debate between ourselves whether part one of the story should be compared to part five or whether point like part one was, you know, serving the purpose that was being, you know, it, yeah, it's like, no, he was the whole thing goes together. It's all one piece. It has like one author. 
But in the Thousand and One Nights, even in the mother source, we have got some issues with the idea of there being one single author. So in the Arabian Nights of Companion, it says the style of the archetype displays a remarkable variety ranging from dialect and common colloquial to a high flown and very correct classic Arabic, end quote. So that's one of the main problems with the idea of, of thinking that the mother source, even like the Syrian mother source that contains less stories. Mm-hmm. The idea that it has a single author. The problem yeah. is that from story to story, they are written very stylistically differently when you go up back to that like medieval text and what that medieval text looks like. Um, but Masan Mahdi argues that the author, the one author, was able to adjust the language and dialect to match the story that was being told. So he's arguing that that's like a stylistic choice that the author made which okay (laughs) like (laughs) but also that variation in language could just be reflective of like grabbing and copying from a variety of different sources yeah and so but i mean like i i understand there are authors i mean we see it in present day there are authors who are able to write in different styles depending on, you know, like the the voice of the characters that they're writing in or like as it serves the purpose yeah. like of their writing. And so it's arguable that, you know, the one author of that mother manuscript was adjusting the language and the dialect to match the story being told. But, but also like Occam's razor is that, you know, like... <laughs> The simplest answer is most likely the most correct answer. The correct one, yeah. Yeah. So another quote says, The stories in the Syrian recession were not thrown together, but have been linked to one another to fit an underlying design. In particular, Mahdi has argued that the exemplary tales that come framed within the main narrative are carefully placed to give a covert message about the fatuity of exemplary tales. In other words, the author has used this genre of stories to undermine itself. Which I know that we can hear the problem of that argument and see that that it's kind of weak. Yeah. That it's like, or to me, maybe if I read the full paper... Yeah. By Moss and Mahdi, I I would be more persuaded. But it, it seems just very complicated to me to assume that there's supposed to be this covert message about like the foolishness of the tales themselves. Mm-hmm. As if like the the author was like, oh, I want to use this same genre of stories to tell how stupid this genre of stories is. Yeah, it seems like a lot of work to put together this many stories to make fun of how <laughs> stupid these stories are. It's like, you must have really liked something about these stories to, like, continue writing so many. That would be like if someone was like, you know what? Twilight is, like, the stupidest book I've ever read in my entire life. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to write a 13-volume romantic supernatural saga of my very own is like dude that'll show no. him <laughs> it's like so well while, while i'm saying that and being like i don't like i don't know 
There have been others who have looked at Mahdi's theory and have noted that it's true that if you look at the first 280-ish nights, which are what this Syrian branch of that stemma, that family tree we talked about, yeah. comprise, there does seem to be some reoccurring themes and elements in those first 280 nights. So another quote from the Arabian Nights of Companion it might also be added in support of Mahdi's thesis that if one takes the first 270 to 280 nights as a unit, it is possible to detect the reoccurrence of certain common devices and images in them. The crucial device is, of course, the framing of one person talking to save a life. Shaharazad does it. So do the sheiks who tell stories to a jinn or genie in order to save the merchant's life. And there are several other stories that like contain that, but I definitely wanted to have that quote in there because we are going to be telling that story of the sheiks who tell stories to a jinn in order to save a merchant's life. So a quote from Mahdi himself, it says, copyists who missed what the Syrian compiler was after and thought the book was like a hole in the ground in which one could dump one story after another, regardless of their styles, structures, or contradictory aims, disfigured the book. Mm. So Mahdi argues that the Egyptian branch of that stemma that we talked about, where I said there are those two, the Syrian and the Egyptian. So the Egyptian one, he says, came later and was adding stories in in this haphazard way, whether to make the nights longer for more money or to actually make it the full thousand nights. It's kind of unclear, you know, what what the Egyptians would have been trying to do in in that. But what he argues is that, you know, like you said, like they treated it like a hole in the ground where they just like (laughs) stuck stuff. No, I get that. Because it's kind of like if you think about it this way, you're like, you know, you've got something like uh, the Twilight Zone or Black Mirror, which are these like anthology stories, different characters, different settings from week to week. So it's a different story each time. Yeah. But like Black Mirror is supposed to be talking about how technology can potentially change the way that we interact with each other and kind of expose this like dark elements of some of the technological advancements that we've had. But if someone else were to get that and like take control over that show and be like, oh, you can just have a different story every week. I've always wanted to tell a story about like a talking dog. So I'm going to tell a story about a talking dog. You know what I mean? Yes, and it doesn't yes. have anything to do with the rest, but you're yeah. lumping it under black mirror, mistakenly thinking that the theme, like, you know, not even knowing that there was this theme and idea behind it, just seeing it as a repository of random stories that you can tell. Yeah. No, th- I think and so he's just- saying that that's what the Egyptians did. They're just like, Oh, this is a great way that we could just, put stories into this thing. There's a bunch of stories in this collection. Let's just add other stories that we like or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so Mahdi felt that that like that Syrian compiler was like this single author with like a purpose. I love how you like compared it to like, like black mirror, the the creators, they had a single vision, like a single purpose for it. And so then like what Mahdi is like arguing is that Arabis can kind of look at what the Syrian stories we're trying to do and view those and analyze those as if those were like a single author by like picking out like in your analogy would be like you know pulling out like which ones actually were in black mirror originally that were to serve like that that purpose what are the the oldest stories that were told in here to like 
prove that point. And I also think definitely, even if I don't agree with like that theory or our listeners don't agree with that theory, Mahdi, what he did was he spent 25 years of his life working on this project and really deeply examining the word by word, the the themes, the motifs, everything, like just going deeply into it. And so I definitely don't think that his ideas or his theories should be like thrown out or just like... Yeah, just like dismissed out of hand. Exactly. Because obviously this guy spent like nearly as much time as I've been on this earth studying this topic. So yes, he probably knows more about it than I do. <laughs> yes. And, and also he, he was able to add a lot to the conversation about the, the nights, um, creating resources to continue the, the work that is like being done today to, to look at things. And so it really is like, he is, probably like a, the foremost expert on the nights. And so I'm definitely not <laughs> saying like, oh, because I might disagree with like this, like, oh, his work is garbage. No, 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 no. He is. Yeah. The work that he did is important to build on people that are still studying it today. Exactly. That like, may argue a, a completely different point based on the same, you know, resources that he was able to produce or something. Yeah. But he, he is absolutely foundational. In fact, he was the person in the first episode we talked about how Aladdin is an orphan tale. Mm-hmm. And he was actually the person who was able through this research that he was doing to figure that out. So I quickly want to like explain that because I, I feel like it's really fascinating. Um, I, yeah, because I, yeah, because I feel like it's fascinating and it's relevant. Everybody can just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> it is very fast and then we'll get into the nights. So when Moss and Madi was, you know, g- getting together all of the sources to start making that stemma and to start looking at these different manuscripts, he tried to get the, the earliest manuscripts that we knew about from different areas. And so obviously Antoine Galland, who was the, the French man who he's credited for being the first European to translate the knights. He had a lot of source material. And so Moss and Mahdi was looking at that source material. And he was also looking at the source material that had been found in the 1800s by Michael Sabah. So Michael Sabah claimed to have the only surviving Iraqi translation or the earliest surviving Iraqi translation of the Thousand and One Nights, which he claimed was from 1703, that it was written and copied down in 1703. The reason why 1703 is significant is because Antoine Galland first published the the first volume of his 12-volume translation. The first one was in 1704. Mm. So if this translation from Iraq was from 1703, then it obviously predates the translations that Antoine Galland had. Yeah. So in about 1901, John Payne was trying to prove that Aladdin was an older story and that it wasn't just 
in Galan's version of mm-hmm. the tales. But the only evidence that John Payne could actually find that Aladdin was not a unique invention to Antoine Galland was one inside of Galland's diaries where he just kind of says like, Oh, I met a storyteller who a Syrian storyteller who told this to me. Yeah. And gave dates. But then also John Payne pointed at the Baghdad or Iraqi translation and said the the story of Aladdin is found inside of that Baghdad translation. Yeah. Therefore, the story of Aladdin isn't unique to Galan because we have evidence of it in this translation that predates yeah. Galan. And so that that was kind of the evidence from, again, 1901 that was gathered to support the idea that Aladdin was not an invention of Galand. I feel a big butt coming on. Yes. Because while Masin Mahdi was going through in, you know, from 1956 to 1984 while he was going through word by word looking at these, because of course he took this Iraqi translation to be making that stemma with to kind of trace it back and see if he could find it relate. And what he found was that it was a fake. That Michael Sabah in the 1800s had created this translation himself. And what he had done was a lot of back translating. He had used some of the uh, versions that he had found in their original languages and copied those down inside from the different libraries in Paris that he found them. But then he had taken the story of Aladdin written by Antoine Galland and he had just back translated it or really forward translated it since yeah back into his manuscript that he had created and so now the only evidence that we have that Galland did not invent Aladdin is just Galland's own diaries saying where he claimed like yeah I totally heard this from a straight up legit storyteller who knows what he's talking about exactly and so it was really interesting just how how Masamadi was able to to track that down track that down look at all that evidence go back through the generations of manuscripts whittling it down into like these two branches and again 25 years of his life so it is like thanks to him that we have a lot of like the the information that we have about the knights and he is just one of the foremost scholars on the knights complete props to him and the reason why this is so important to bring up right now for this episode of the podcast is because these stories are contained in that first 280 nights. So the Syrian branch, the, mm-hmm. the mother source. 
And so even though we're, of course, not reading it from the mother source, because what we have is written in English, (laughs) (laughs) Um, the story is, you know, what is in the mother source. And we can talk about and look at, okay, so why is this important that this is like the first story that Shahrazad tells to the king? And so with that, we're actually going to start night one of The Thousand and One Nights. And we're going to be doing, we kind of, we did this in the last episode. I think it worked well of nested tales. When we go into a nested tale, we're going to like switch who's telling the story to kind of make it easier for our listeners to know when we've gone into like a nested tale. So I'm going to start us off taking us back to where we were when we left off in January. So back in the bedroom of the king is where we're going. So Shahrazad said, I have heard, O fortunate king, that a wealthy merchant who had many dealings throughout the lands rode out one day to settle a matter of business in one of them. So we've got this merchant who is now traveling out into the desert. He's got business that he has to attend to. And as he is going through the desert, of course, he gets hot. So he sits down under this tree and he starts digging in his saddlebag for a snack and he pulls out a piece of bread and a date. So he ate his piece of bread and then he started eating the date. And when he was finished eating the date, he had the little, the stone that was inside the date and he just threw it out into the desert. And a couple seconds after he threw it out into the desert, a giant ifrit which is a type of djinn, suddenly appears with a giant sword in his hand. (laughs) And he says, get up so that I can kill you as you have just killed my son. Oh, no. (laughs) And the merchant's like sitting there under this tree, obviously in total shock. This like Ifrit just like climbed up like huge into the sky and is threatening him with a sword. And he's like, how did I kill your son? I I didn't see your son. I didn't, I'm just sitting here. And the Ifrit was like, when you ate that date and threw the stone, it struck my son in the chest as he was walking and he died instantly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a good time to note right now that most of the time, apparently Jin travel around invisible to the human eye. Yeah. Which... And apparently they're very <laughs> fragile. Oh, my gosh. And you can just kill them by throwing a date pit at them. I guess. Oh, my goodness. Just straight up hit him in the chest. And now, obviously, his dad is out for blood. I know this is the kind of parent I am, too. I'm like, did you just hurt my kid? Even if somebody's Prepare like, it was to an die. Ex- <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't care if it was an accident. <laughs> Get ready. So the merchant kind of like argues back that he's like, wait, 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 wait. Uh, This was obviously clearly an accident that has happened. And because this was an accident that has happened, obviously, you know, the Lord God planned this in advance. This is, you know, part of the the chain of events of the universe. And therefore, like, I, I shouldn't be held responsible or accountable for your son dying because that was not like my intent. It was like an accident. And the Ifrit said, no, no, I have to kill you now. 
it is written, I have got to kill you now. So he starts dragging the merchant off so that he can like throw him down onto the ground. And he raised up his sword ready to strike the merchant. And the merchant exclaims, I entrust my affairs to God. And then he starts reciting like a long chain of like religious poetry, which we noted in like the first episode. Mm-hmm. It happens a lot. And it's, it's rare that it affects the narrative of the story. And so like, <laughs> do excuse me um, if I skip over that. Because the Ifrit also said, stop talking, for by God, I am most certainly going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he's stop begging God to like not let this happen because it is by God and through God that I now am in the power and position to murder you. So like quit your, your poetry and scripture reading. So the merchant begs, he says, I'm a wealthy man. I have a wife and I have kids. I have affairs that I need to get settled, not not affairs. You guys know what I mean. Right. You guys yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> I don't know. With these, some of these stories, it's like maybe he did have affairs to settle. I don't know. But anyway, he's like, I have my affairs that I've got to settle. If I promise to come back on New Year's, they say New Year's Day. I don't know if it's New Year's Day or if it's just it, with it, like it, within a year or whatever. He says, mm-hmm. I am going to come back if you just let me go home and settle all of my affairs that I have to settle. And the Ifrit, a moment of being reasonable, was like, fine, I will let you go as long as you promise that you will come back. The man promises, and he goes back to his house. He tells everybody what happened. He settles his affair. And when it is the new year, he performs his ritual oblations, gets his body ready for death. And it says with his shroud under his arm says goodbye to his family. So he's got, you know, his burial shroud (laughs) with him ready because he knows what he's about. And he sets off reluctantly while his whole family is crying and weeping at him leaving. So he goes right back to the place where he met the Ifrit before and he sits down and he starts crying about his fate And an old man approaches him, and the man is leading a gazelle on a chain. And the newcomer greets the merchant, and he asks him why he's sitting in this place, because the whole town knows that this area is haunted by a djinn. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, oh, you might not want to sit here. This place is kind of notorious for being a place where djinn hang out. He's like, no, you tell me. Where were you a year ago, man? (laughs) Now you tell me. So the merchant quickly tells the man with the gazelle the story of what happened when he encountered the Ifrit the year before. And the man is like, you are a very honest and pious man to promise to come back. And you actually like went through with it. I am going to sit here with you and wait for this gin to come because I'm so impressed by you as a person. I don't want you to, you know, die alone. Mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to sit here with you. So he sits down next to the merchant and, you know, they're just sitting together. So a second man starts walking over and he has two black dogs with him. And he greets the two men and he says, you know, you might not want to be sitting here because this place is notorious (laughs) (laughs) for being haunted by a djinn. 
And of course, they explain everything to this man over again. And he, just like the first man, is so impressed by the piousness of the merchant. And he decides that he is going to sit down and stay with the merchant and the man with the gazelle and see what happens next. So then along comes a third man and he is walking with a dappled mule a dappled mule it makes it like a very beautiful mule (laughs) already one of nature's most graceful and beautiful animals (laughs) so he walks over and he he greets the men sitting under the tree and of course he's like you guys might not want to sit here (laughs) (laughs) it's too bad all of these guys knew about it but not the merchant but He's, they explain the whole story to him, and he, just like the other two men, is so impressed with, like, the merchant's moral character, with, like, showing back up to kind of get what's coming to him. And he sits down to wait and see what happens. So not much longer, a huge dust devil appeared in the middle of the desert, and this swirl of wind and sand comes closer and closer to this group and it gets close to them and then the sand dissolves down and standing in the center is the ifrit and he has a drawn sword it says sparks shooting from his eyes which is also interesting to note that in these stories angels are made of light Mm-hmm. But jinn are made of fire. So that's kind of like uh, the distinction like between them. So it's interesting yeah. that he's got these sparks shooting out of his eyes. Um, because it's like, you know, that fire like inside of yeah. this like Ifrit, this jinn. And so he comes over and he sees all of these people waiting. And he grabs the merchant and he drags them from between them. And he says, get up so that I can kill you if you have killed my beloved son. So the merchant is sobbing and weeping and just big old ugly crying. So the man that had come with the gazelle, he gets up and he walks over and he kisses the Ifrit's hand and he says, Ginny, royal crown of the jinn, if I tell you the story of my connection with this gazelle, will you grant me a third share of this merchant's blood? And the Ifrit, who was intrigued... (laughs) says, yes, if I find your story truly marvelous, you can have one-third share of this merchant's blood. And so the old man began his tale. So the man gestures to the gazelle and says, this gazelle is actually my cousin, who is also actually my wife. And we were married for 30 years But in those 30 years, she was unable to produce a child for me. So because I was unable to have a child with my wife, I took a concubine and I had a son with this concubine. And he says that this kid was amazing. He says, quote, yeah, the perfection of his eyes and eyebrows make him look like the full moon when it appears. So he has a son, this amazing full moon looking son. (laughs) And 15 years go by. And his wife, who had studied sorcery since way back when, decides, I don't know why on this timing, but to turn the son into a calf and then turn the concubine who mothered the son into a cow. And she gave them to the herdsmen and basically like told 
the husband that, you know, your son and his mother have gone missing. And the dude is like, oh, man, I was sad for just like a whole year mourning the loss of my son and this concubine. And then this holiday called Ed al-Adha comes around and he sends for one of his fattest cows to come so that they can sacrifice it. So I looked into the celebration. Ed al-Adha is a holiday, one of like the biggest holidays in the Islamic religion to commemorate the prophet Abraham's devotion to God and ready, readiness to sacrifice his son Ishmael, which is a story from, you know, it's in like the Old Testament and like, so within like Islam, Judaism and Christianity kind of have the same shared story about prophet Abraham who was asked by God to sacrifice his son. And because he was willing to do it, an angel stops him at the last minute and he doesn't have to sacrifice him. And uh, on this holiday, they do kind of a cool thing in that they sacrifice an animal and they do so to like make a big meal. And so you break it into three shares which I didn't realize the significance of before now. And you keep some for yourself so that you can have like a feast with your family. You have a third of it that you share with your friends. And then the last third of the meat that you get from this animal that you slaughter, you donate to the poor people that are in need so that they can have a meal to eat, which is like, that's kind of like a really cool holiday and celebration of just like, let's make sure everybody gets fed. And there's no particular relevance to why I'm telling you this story at all. Wink. So, (laughs) (laughs) when the herdsman brings the cow to this old man, the cow just starts crying and sobbing, these tears running down its face, you know, and it's like... cow face. (laughs) Unbeknownst to him, this cow is, you know, the concubine and the mother of his child. And when he sees the cow crying, not knowing this, he's just like, I, I can't slaughter this poor animal. I mean, it's really upset. But his wife is like, no, you have to do it. We got to celebrate the holiday. We got to celebrate the holiday right. Presumably she knows exactly what well, is going yeah, on. And of course. she's like, this is like her grandmaster plan, I think. And so he's like, okay, I like we'll have it slaughtered, but I can't do it. So he sends the herdsman off. He's like, have it slaughtered and we'll, you know, prepare the meat and, you know, make a, a feast and share it with everybody. But when the herdsman goes and slaughters it and skins it, it's like, it's just skin and bones. It doesn't produce any meat. And he's like completely flummoxed by this situation. It was like, it was a fat cow, I swear. So the herdsman comes back and tells him this whole thing. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but like, I wasn't able to get any meat off of this thing. So it's like, okay, well, we got to, you know, do this to celebrate the holiday. It's part of the thing. So he says, okay, well, give me a calf. I know we have like a fat calf out there. So bring that. Uh, and we'll kill that instead. And of course, this calf is his son. And when they bring it there, knowing what's going to happen, the calf falls on the ground and starts rolling around crying. And the herdsman's like, what is going on? But his wife, which he points out, is like, my wife, this gazelle right here, uh, insists that I have to slaughter it. And she said, by God, the omnipotent, the compassionate and merciful, you must do this on this noble day, or you are not my husband and I am not your wife. And I'm like, man, that's pretty like heartless to like call on God, be compassionate and merciful to like have your husband straight up murder his concubine and his own son. Yeah, it's like, wow, lady, that's bold. Yeah. So the guy, you know, not wanting to upset his wife and like essentially get divorced, I guess is what she's saying. Like, hey, do this or we're we're done. He goes up to the calf with his knife in hand, raises it up high over his head, and... Morning now dawned. 
and Shahrazad broke off from what she had been allowed to say. <laughs> so Dunyazad, her sister, Leaving was him like, on a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> was like, what a good, pleasant, delightful, and sweet story this is. Which I'm like, I don't, I, I don't is know she about a different story than we are. I'm like, I don't know about some of those adjectives. <laughs> But Shahrazad says, oh, it does not even compare to what is coming tomorrow night. And this is important to note because, of course, like we said, that was the that was the first night. So this is the first morning after they're trying to see if this plan is going to work. So Shahrazad said, how can this story even compare to what I'm going to tell you tonight? That is, if I'm still alive and the king spares me. And at this, you know, they both turn and look over (laughs) at the king. And he was like, well, I'm not going to kill her until I hear the end of the story. And so it says they spent the rest of the time embracing one another until the sun had fully risen. And in the translation, it doesn't quite make it clear whether the two sisters are the ones embracing each other or whether he is embracing Shaharazad, his wife. Yeah. Which I think is like interesting. So that day, after the sun comes up, the king, which I'm like, I'm wondering how much sleep at night these people are actually getting, because I don't know whether they're, you know, telling the story until exhaustion and taking a break and sleeping or so we'll all suspend our disbelief. Nobody sleeps at all ever in this kingdom. Just kidding. But when the sun had fully risen, the king then got up, he went to his court, and so the vizier, who is, of course, Shahrazad's father, the vizier comes, and he is carrying a shroud under his arm because, of course, he thinks that his daughter is now about Mm. to be sentenced to death. Yeah. And so the vizier comes into court and he's holding the shroud and he's waiting. And all day long, the king is sitting and he's, you know, giving his judgments. He's appointing some officials and dismissing others all until nighttime. And nighttime gets there and the vizier is still standing there just waiting to hear that it's time for his daughter to be murdered. And to his great surprise... No instruction about his daughter ever comes. And the court was then dismissed and the king returns back to the bedchamber. And the vizier is standing there just wondering, what the heck? So when he gets in, Dunyazad, the sister, says to Shahrazad's sister, finish your story of the merchant and the Ifrid for us. With pleasure. (laughs) If the king gives me permission. And when the king gave permission, she said, I have heard, O fortunate king and rightly guided ruler, that when the merchant was about to cut the throat of the calf, he was moved by pity and told the herdsmen to keep the calf among the other beasts. So he didn't kill the calf after all. So the Ifrit was listening with astonishment to what the old man with the gazelle was saying. And the old man went on. So he says, Lord of the kings of the jinn, while all this was going on, my wife, nope, this gazelle, who is my wife and my cousin, which that's something I want to talk about. I don't know if we're prepared to talk about this episode about like they're always marrying their cousins in these stories. 
She was looking on and telling me. It's I, like, just very quickly. It could either mean that they are cousins, but in like a distant sense. Yeah, More of that's like what I was a, thinking like too. A, yeah, like a clansman like, situation. Yeah. One, it's a different culture than we have. Like here, we're like, oh, cousins, that's not okay. But in lots of cultures, even European cultures, that was like, fine. Yeah. Not today it's not, but like, you know, in England and stuff and royalty especially that was going on. But also in these days when we think of our cousins, we just think of like our first cousins. Yeah. But we have so many cousins, but because we don't all live in the same place because we have technology and transportation that lets us move around more yeah. freely. Like we're not as aware. Like we have cousins yeah. that we don't even know. Because that's who what they like are. that's like my aunt, she grew up in a really, really small town. And her cousin's best friend was his own third cousin. So my aunt's own third cousin. And he, they lived in this small town together. And she and my grandparents like moved out of that town, but she still hung out and talked to like, you know, her cousin cousin. And her cousin cousin was like, oh, have you met Lamar? And she started dating Lamar and then found out at some point, I mean, they always knew that they must be somehow Related to each yeah. other. But it wasn't until after they got married that they found out that they were third cousins. Yeah. But it's basically like they only you only know the people that you know, you know? Yeah. yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And and so it is it is like, yeah, you're and going like, to ma- you're gonna marry a person that you know. And exactly. if everybody like in your staying, town Yeah. Yeah. When you're staying in the same town and you're not really moving out and moving on, like People are marrying each other all the time. At some point, those things are going to get crossed and you're going to be related to everybody in the town in some way, unless you move somewhere else or someone new moves in. And then it won't take long for that new person to then make connections that then they're related to everybody else too. So yeah. I'm not judging. I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, how do we get into this? And in it's just episode? interesting. It's yeah. interesting that they always point it out too. Like, yeah, that they're like, um, my wife and my cousin. But anyway, so she, it, the gazelle, who is the wife, was looking on and saying, like, no, you have to kill the calf. It's fat. It's ready. It meets the requirements. Because they actually, like, for this holiday, kind of are there only certain animals that they can kill. And it's supposed to be, like, healthy and and fat and whatever. Because you're going to share it as a food for your friends and, and the poor people. Yeah. But he just because, couldn't do it. Yeah, because it would be be super, like, lame of you to be like, okay, I'm going to pick... An animal that like already was kind of like dying and lame and stupid anyway, and just get this animal. It's like okay, that's that's cheap. That's loser. Yeah, and it's yeah. also you know it's commemorating this like sacrifice that Abraham was willing to make, which was like his son, which is like a big deal to him. So anyway, the herdsman takes the calf away, and the guy is just sitting. He's like, I'm just sitting there thinking about what's going on. And the next day, the herdsman comes back and he's like, hey, I have something to tell you. I think you'll be super stoked. It's great news. But I want you to give me a reward for, you know, telling you this great news. So he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Tell me. And so he's like, okay, I have a daughter. And my daughter, since she was a little girl, was taught magic by this old woman. So yesterday when you gave me the calf, I went with the calf to the girl and she saw it and she covered her face and just started busting up laughing and she's like oh father do you hold me so cheap that you bring strange men to me (laughs) he's like i was just like what strange men what are you talking about he's like why are you laughing and crying and she's like the calf that you have is our master's son that's why i'm laughing bring him into my house 
And the reason I was crying before was because his was because his father killed his mother. And so the herds was like, I was astonished by this. And as soon as I found out this morning, I came to tell you. And then so the old man is like, when I heard what this guy had to say, I went out with him and I was drunk, not on wine, but with the <laughs> joy and delight of what I was feeling that I had found my son. So we went to the guy's house. The daughter welcomed me and kissed my hands. And he saw the calf rolling around on the ground. And I said to this girl, I said, is what you said about the calf true? And she's like, yes, 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 it's true. This is your son. So uh, I said, hey, if you can free him, you can have all the beasts, everything that your father looks after. And the girl's like, master, I only want this on these two conditions. The first one being that you will let me marry your son when I turn him back. And the second one being that I will be allowed to put a spell on whoever it is that did this to him. Otherwise, I don't think I'm going to be safe from this person's scheming. So the old man's like, oh, when I heard what she said, you know, I, I agreed. I promised to give her what it was, everything that was in her father's charge. And I would even give her permission to kill my wife. The old man said, you know, when I'd said that, she took a bowl and filled it with water and did some kind of spell on it. And then she sprinkled it over the calf saying, if you're a calf and this is how almighty God created you, stay in this shape and don't change. But if you are under a spell, then return to your original shape with the permission of almighty God. Which I thought that was kind of interesting too, like this intertwining of like magic and the religion. Yep. It's like, hmm, I imagine we'll talk about that. And suddenly the calf becomes a man. And then, you know, I'm the old man now. I fell on him and I was like, oh, please tell me what happened. What did my wife do to you and your mother? So he I, he knew. It was like, oh, if he got turned into a calf, it must have been my evil wife's doing. And so the son told him what had happened. He's like, oh, I'm so glad that God sent a rescuer to save you from this plight. So the herdsman's daughter was married to the son, and she used a spell to transform my wife into this gazelle. And she said, this is a beautiful shape and not a brutish one, repellent to the sight. I was like, okay, that was kind of, I guess, a mercy. She's like, I could have turned her into anything, but I turned her into a beautiful little gazelle that you see with me here, my wife gazelle. And so this girl stayed with us for a while until God chose to take her to himself. So she died, sadly. (laughs) I love how you... Oh, she died. And my son went off to India, the country of the man with whom you've had this experience. And then I took my wife, this gazelle, and I've started traveling from place to place to look for news of my son until I came along here and saw this merchant weeping. And that is my story. It is indeed a marvelous tale. The Ifrit agreed. And so the Ifrit granted him one-third of the share of that merchant's blood. So at this point, it's like property is nine-tenths of the law. No. (laughs) So now a third of this blood of that man, of the merchant, belongs to one of these old men. So two-thirds of his blood still belongs to... The gin. So what you're saying is the gin still has a controlling interest in this man's blood. Yes, he does. And therefore his life. <laughs> yes, he does. So at this point, the old man that had the two black dogs, which were Salukis, and Saluki are a breed of dogs. They're one of the oldest breeds of dog. 
And mm. they originated in the Fertile Crescent. They are hunting dogs that were used by nomadic tribesmen to hunt down game animal. They're also called gazelle hounds, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> An Arabian hound or a Persian greyhound. So that tells you a little bit of like what they look like. They are like yeah. these like long, skinny, sleek dogs. Yeah, um, they're beautiful. They look like greyhounds with like fluffy ears. Long, yeah. fluffy eared greyhounds. Some of them. So yeah, they, they have kind of like a, a range of different colors because there's apparently desert saluki, which are sand colored, <laughs> which like <laughs> makes sense. Uh but you also have, you know, uh black ones and every mixture. Some of them have like more fur on their ears or short fur. So there's there's kind of like a, a wide range of how they look, but they're all very like sleek, thin, think greyhound kind of dogs. Cute. Also think cute. Yeah. They're good dogs. But not these two. <laughs> Just kidding. We'll hear the story in a second. So the old man who had these two Saluki went over to the Ephraim and he said, if I tell you what happened to me and my brothers, these two dogs, and you find it the most extraordinary and astonishing of tales, can you give me one third of this merchant's blood? And the Ephraim agrees. And the man begins. So man begins by saying, Lord of the Kings of the Jinn, which I thought is kind of interesting. It's like Lord of the Kings of the Jinn. So he's like, man, he's a high ranking Jinn, apparently. These two dogs that I have with me, these Salukis, are actually my brothers. And then I am the third. When my father died, he left each of us 3,000 dinars each. And each of us opened a shop so that we could do business. So I've not been doing this for very long when my eldest brother, who's now one of these dogs, sold the contents of his shop for a 1,000 dinars, bought some trade goods, and set out on his travels. And he'd been gone a year, then he came back to me as a beggar to my shop. And he said, he's like, don't you know me anymore? And when I looked more closely at him, I realized, oh man, this is my brother. So when I saw this was my brother, I got him up and welcomed him into the shop. And I kind of asked him how he was doing. And he's like, oh man, all my wealth is gone. My circumstances have changed. So I kind of took care of my brother, gave him some baths, gave him some of my clothes and you know, when I checked the accounts of my shop, I realized that I'd made, you know, a profit of about a thousand dinars on the on what I had. So I divided this with my brother and I said, hey, you know what? Forget that you even went abroad. Just take the money and open another shop. And my brother was super thankful for that. So a little later, my second brother, this other dog, sold everything that he had with intention of traveling. And we tried, me and my brother, to stop him. We were like, hey, did you not see what happened to this brother? He tried the same thing. He came back a beggar. Didn't really work out for him. But we were unsuccessful, and he went off, and he spent a whole year. And he came back in the same state as my older brother. And we were like, come on, bro. Did we not tell you not to go? <laughs> but at this point, I gave him a bath, gave him some clothes, gave him something to eat and drink, and... You know, I did another audit of my shop, seeing what I could do to help out my brother. And I realized that I had made more of a profit and I had 2,000 dinars. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. So I, you know, praised our exalted creator 
and I gave him a thousand and I kept the other thousand for myself. So that brother opened up a shop and was doing his thing there. So a little more time passes and these two morons <laughs> proposed that we should all go off together on a voyage. And I was like, no, <laughs> what did you get from traveling the last time that makes you think that we could make a profit by going off and trying to travel around and make sales. He's like, no, I'm not even going to listen to this stuff. We're going to stay and we're going to trade in our shops. And every single year they would come back with the same harebrained scheme. And after about six years, I got tired of them asking, so I finally accepted. And so I'd ask them to show me what money they had, only to find that they didn't have any because they'd squandered it all on food, drink, and entertainment of all kinds. I was like, this is not the type of people you're wanting to enter into a business agreement. Yeah, with. well, because I like that. It's like it just makes me wonder how much of them losing all that money when they were gone traveling was, yeah, like because of bad business decisions or 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 the harshness of the world outside, and how much yeah. of it was them. Because I'm like, they also squandered a bunch of money just being there at home. Yeah, it's so. like they're <laughs> obviously not very financially responsible. So, you know what, after they came back and said that, I didn't say a word to them. I just checked my own accounts and I, you know, sold the stuff that I had, all the goods in my shop. And I was delighted to find out that I had a total of 6,000 dinars. So I divided this in half, telling my brothers that they could have each 1,000 of the three dinars, and I would as well, with which we can trade and do whatever. And I buried... The remaining 3,000, just in case the same thing happened to me that happened to them while we were all abroad. And so that, you know, and if that happened, we could come back and still have money to open up shops again and not completely ruin our lives. This is the financially responsible brother. Yes. So they're like, okay, fine. He gave him 1,000 dinars. I mean, who's going to turn that down? Like, oh, I'll give you 1,000 dinars when you have no money. It's like, and you get to go on the big trip that you're wanting to go yeah, on. Yeah, they're like. And that I am bankrolling. Like, of course they agreed. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like they had a lot going for them in town anyway. Yeah. Maybe this time I'll be lucky. Like, no, guys. You haven't changed at all, so chances are your circumstances are. Except this time, after they'd gone out, made their preparations for travel, they went out onto their journey, and after just one month's time, they'd already gotten a tenfold profit Woo-woo. on their investment. So they were, like, about to sail off again. When on the shore, this girl came dressed in rags and tatters and she came up to me and she kissed my hands and she asked me like if I was a charitable man. And, you know, I was thinking to myself like, man, I've given these two knucklehead brothers of mine (laughs) two thirds of my money. Yeah, I'm pretty dang charitable. (laughs) I'm pretty charitable. But what I said was I love charity and good deeds. And I, you know, I said to her, it's like, look, even if you don't give me any reward, I would love to give you some money. And the girl says, marry me, master, and take me to your country. And I'm giving myself to you. Just treat me kindly because I'm someone that deserves kindness and generosity. And I'll pay you back. You know, don't be misled by the wretched state that I'm in now. And so when I heard this, I felt a yearning for her. If you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, and so he provided her with clothes and, you know, this like elegantly furnished accommodation on the ship. And I treated her with respect the whole time. Uh, and I just fell so deeply in love with her that I couldn't stand to leave her. I just kept her by my side night and day. 
And in this concern for her, I kind of neglected my brothers who grew jealous of me. They were envying my wealth and all of my goods. And they saw the great life I was having with this new wife of mine. And they started plotting to kill me and take all that I have. And, you know, obviously it was Satan that made this seem like it was a good idea. So when they found me alone in my bed beside my wife, they picked us both up and threw us overboard off of the ship. And while we were being thrown overboard, my wife woke up and this like shudder went through her and she became an Ifrita. And she carried me off to an island where she left me for a little bit before coming back to me. She's saying, I am your servant. It was I who saved your life. I carried you off with the permission of God. I saved you. And now you must know that I am a jinn. And when I saw you, I fell in love with you as God decreed to me that I must because I believe in him and his apostle, which is like, wow, it's like, the, it's again, interesting that the jinn, these like mystical creatures believe in God. Some of them are, they all, it's like, they all believe in God. Some of them follow him though. And some, and of, them some of them don't. Yeah. And it is interesting. So I came to you wearing these rags, but you married me and now I've saved you from drowning. And I'm, to be honest, pretty pissed with your brothers for trying to kill you and me. And so like, man, I was like freaking out when I heard this. And I thanked her so much that, for what she had done, but I still love my brothers. And I could tell that she was like so mad she was going to kill him. So I said, you know, I told her the whole story of everything that happened with them, how charitable I'd been with them and, and all that. And I, I asked her to please not kill them. And she's like, nope, tonight I'm going to fly off to them. I'm going to sink their ship, going to kill them all. And, you know, I just begged God, please don't do that to them. And, I re- and then he says, like, you know, I reminded her of this proverb that says that we should do good to those who wrong us. It says the evildoer's own deeds are punishment enough for him. And pointing out that, all the events that had happened and the fact that they were still my brother's she continued to insist that she was going to kill him. So she insisted she was going to go and destroy my brothers. She picked me up and flew me off and put me down on the roof of my own house. And when I got in there, I went in, I got the money I'd buried, and I started, you know, reestablishing my life back in the city, going out, buying goods to set up a shop for trade. But when I got home that evening, I came back and there were these two dogs tied up in front of my house. And when they saw me, they had tears in their eyes and they came up and they attached themselves to me. And before I realized what was happening, my wife came and said, these are your brothers. And I was like, oh, what happened? She's like, well, I sent a message to my sister. She transformed them and they're not going to be freed from this spell of being dogs for 10 years. And so my brothers have been in this state for 10 years and I was on my way to get them released when I came across this man and he told me his story. And you know what? I could not leave before I found out what was going to happen to him because I just respected him so much. And this, O oh Lord of the King of the Jinn, is my tale. And it is a marvelous one, agreed the Ifrit. And he added, I will grant you a third share in the blood the merchant owes for his crime. So in that little story, you just mentioned Satan, which I think is fascinating because again, we're reading an English translation. And so anytime there's a word where I'm like, huh, that's weird that they chose to use that word, I have to think to myself, okay, like, where does this go back? So there are uh, basically like devils, demons, evil spirits um, that were called shatan uh. that were known to entice humans to sin by whispering into their hearts 
And so it is interesting that they say like Satan told like spoke to their hearts to do this thing to their brother. Yeah. And it's like, wait, Satan. And it's like Satan in the way that you would understand that what what they're referencing. And so it's not it's not a direct equivalent, Satan. Yeah. I just think that that's. That is super fascinating. That, it, that it's interesting when you're looking at like research to be like, okay, when they use this word, what do they mean? Because we'll see as we're going through that, like when they say like witches, they're, mm-hmm. they also mean something entirely different from like what, what we, and I say we as in European minded, what like yeah. a European who hears the word witch, it means something completely different because they wouldn't use the word witch in their own language to describe those characters. But it's right. a word that we would kind of recognize and understand an equivalent. And the same happens with um, fairies. The word fairies pops up inside uh-huh. of the nights, also, again, different. So even though we said the word Satan, it's not in the same way that we in the West would think of Satan. So I just wanted to cool. do that as like a quick sidebar. That- yeah, that's interesting. I love it. And I would I would be really interested to at some point see, because even like the etymology of the word like Satan. I don't know where that comes from, like whether it's like Hebrew or whatever. And, and the like fact that this one, that it's so similar and exactly. that the functions of them are like very similar is like, I feel like they're so similar. There's got to be some relation, even though I understand they are different things. But yeah, again, what is the mother uh, word that spawned these two separate ideas? Yes, exactly. But back into the story. So. The third man who had that dappled mule with him, you know, he's caught on to what the plan is <laughs> at this point. So he says to the Ifrit, if I tell you a story more amazing than even these two stories, will you grant me a third share in this man's life? And the Ifrit agrees. And so the man with the mule went on. So the man goes and he says, Sultan and leader of the jinn. This mule is my wife. It's like copying off of the first guy. It's like I'd been away from her on one year in my travels, and then I came back to her. And it was at night, and I saw her with a slave lying in bed. And the two of them, they were talking, they were flirting, they were kissing and laughing, and they're playing around with each other. And when my wife saw that I had seen this, she came and threw a jug of water over me and set a spell. And once she had done this, she said, leave this shape of yours and take the form of a dog. And immediately I became a dog. <laughs> and she drove me out of the house, you know, chasing me off like, shoo, shoo, be gone with you, white fanging me. And I went on, you know, like kind of shocked now in this new dog form. My white. wife is having an affair. White fanging me. And I went on until I found a butcher shop where I was like, hey, you know, I need something to eat. I'm a dog. So I started gnawing on bones, as dogs do. And... When the butcher saw me, he took me into his house where his daughter covered her face and was like, "What, father, what are you doing? Are you bringing a man into me? And the butcher was like, what, where is there a man? And she's like, that dog over there is a man that someone has cast a spell on and turned him into a dog. He's like, but, you know, I can cast a spell that will free him for it. And her dad was like, well, do it then. What are we do? What are we wasting time for? So she got a jug of water, spoke some words over it, and then she sprinkled them on me. She said, go back to your original shape. And that's what I did. So I kissed her hand and I said, I would like you to use your magic to do to my wife what she did to me. 
And so she gave me some water and she said, when you find her asleep, sprinkle this water over her and say what you like and she'll become whatever it is that you want. So I took the water. I went to my wife who was sleeping. I sprinkled her with the water and I said, leave this shape and become a mule. And she did there and then. And that is how you can see that my wife has come before you as a mule. And he turns to the mule and I says, isn't that right? And so the mule nodded its head, conveying that, yes, this is true. And that is my story. This is what happened to me. So when the old man had finished his tale, the Efrit trembled with delight. I don't understand why, because I don't think that that last story was as impressive, but whatever. And he granted that man a third of the merchant's blood. And at this, Shahrazad broke off from her story as the morning dawned. And her sister said, what a good, pleasant, delightful and sweet story this is. (laughs) Which again, I'm like, all right, Dunyazad, you're kind of overselling it. Settle down. And so Shahrazad then says... How can this compare with what is to come with the merchant next? That is, if the king spares my life. And at this, the king was like, well, I can't kill her until I hear what happens to this merchant, man. You know, does does he go free? I don't know. Something amazing is going to happen in the next night. And so, you know, again, he lays in bed until it's time for him to get up. He goes to court. And he goes through his work all day thinking about what is to come that night in the story. And quickly, when it's the end of the day, he finishes up, you know, (laughs) he finishes up at court and he dismisses everybody and he quickly returns to Shahrazad. And on that third night, Dunyazad asks her sister to finish the story. And Shahrazad says, with pleasure. So then she says, after that third old man had told the Ifrit a most remarkable story, more remarkable than the other two, (laughs) strong disagree. (laughs) And in his astonishment and delight, the Ifrit had granted the remaining share of the blood debt. He had to allow the merchant to go free. And for his part, the merchant went and thanked the old men and encouraged them on their next journey. But then, which I'm like, that's the end of the story, which I'm like, oh, Shahrazad, you sneaky girl. Because I'm like, that is like the end. She's like. It's like, you definitely had time to tell that the other night. Just saying, <laughs> but. Yeah, like you could have finished that up that morning. But then she said, this, however, is not more surprising than the tale of the fisherman. And then she starts her next night's tale. So. That is the first set of like tales and nested tales that we have. Yeah. And of course, we can all see that, you know, Shahrazad has her ploy of tricking the king into the next night, even if, you know, the story really isn't yeah. all that it's promised because it doesn't matter. It bought her another night, just another night and the chance to quickly go into the next story. Yeah. Which she does. And the next story lasts much longer. (laughs) (laughs) And I love, I love this. Like, I love this structure. I love the, I love the story of Scheherazade and like tricking the king to being able to survive another night. And I also love how the elements like kind of go together. Like you're saying, we're talking about this story of 
this man who accidentally killed the Jin's son who's going to die. So he goes off and he comes back with his burial shroud under his arm prepared to die. And then the next morning, the vizier comes with a burial shroud preparing to bury his daughter who he thinks is going to be put to death. You know, it's like, oh, man, I love those elements there. And, uh, And, you know, and then just the stories within the stories that she tells are great too yeah and while we're talking about the topic of uh, the the knights and what happens so as as we go further in with shaharazad it gets it gets very like the the structure is very repetitive back and forth and Mm -hmm. so as we're moving forward telling these tales that stuff is still going to be happening night to night um but probably as we're retelling it we will skip over it. And that's what a lot of the um, the people writing a lot of the early manuscripts would do as well. They would, towards the middle of it, start cutting out all of that, like, in-between conversation. Yeah. And they would just use the, the like, night 184, you know, as, like, a yeah. heading for kind of for a next chapter, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I wanted the the first couple times that that happens it's important to like leave that in there because like you said, there's yeah. the stuff of the shroud, the, like the follow-up of, of what's expected that next morning that does not happen. Yeah. It's finishing up kind of that first part of the story of like, is she going to be able to trick the King? And once we find out that she is, it's like, okay, she can sustain this. You know, they're not going back into being like, she had, there's all this other stuff that's happening, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then I presume I haven't actually read all this. Stuff, oh, yeah. But, no. Um, and then and then when you get when we get back towards the end, when we're kind of at the tail end of the Thousand and One Nights at the end of like this project, like their conversations to each other do become important. Yeah. And we'll like re- like, you know, go back to doing that. I just don't want people to think we're always going to have kind of like that same kind of yeah confusing structure of breaking up a story like right in the center like we did today. Because we had like nested tale within nested tale within nested tale, really. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's Shahrazad, the top nest. Yeah. <laughs> the the biggish Matroshka doll. <laughs> <laughs> no, mixing too many cultural metaphors. But anyway, going back to the stories themselves. So like what you were saying is there there are these elements that obviously are working together or else it's very coincidental that these elements are like popping back up because um, the shroud does seem very like key that yeah like he's carrying his shroud in the same way that Shahrazad's father is like bringing her shroud thinking that that's going to happen but then also we have this idea that we kind of set up in the first episode talking about these stories are to talk about both what's right and wrong and punishing people who might not deserve punishment and also women and how wily are they (laughs) Uh uh-huh And so, I mean, obviously, like in the quote we told before, there is this like reoccurring theme of stories told to save a life. And it's fascinating that that's what is the first thing that's happening in the story of the Knights is Shaharazad's telling stories to save her life. And she tells a story about men who tell stories to save a life. But let's talk about the women inside of these tales. There's something that was really interesting about this to me when you go on to that. And it's about like women and men, but I think it's the point that I make 
is mostly about the women, but I will talk about the men a little bit. In that, like, in the first tale, we have the gazelle who got turned into a gazelle because she did something bad. She tricked this man into, like, killing his own concubine and trying to kill his son. Oh, and can I say, I absolutely love that you brought up what festival it was, that it was a festival about the story of in the Bible when Abraham was about to kill his son. And inside of that story... Was a man, a man that was about, who's about to kill, to kill his, son. his son. Yeah, I was like, so perfect. Yeah, I was like, I loved it when you were like, I don't know why this is important. Wink, wink. I was like, brilliant. Because it's like, the thing that happens that I think is interesting is you've got her. She's doing a bad thing. Obviously, we do not like her. And she gets punished for it in the end by being turning to a gazelle. But she yes. doesn't get killed like she might deserve. But the other thing is that it is a kind woman who is the one that saves his son, turns him back into a calf, and then gives him the power to punish the person that was there. So it's like, yes, women can be tricky, but then there are also these women that do good things for you. Then the next one where it's talking about the dogs, it's like, oh, guess what? Even men will betray you and do things that are bad for you. And sometimes the woman is the one that can see this and save you from the situation as it was with like, you know, the Ifrit that he married. Yeah. You know, it's like it showed like a really good mix. And then the third story, which is just, you know, a whole mess, but it's same think, sort of thing. What's funny is like the the third story is basically the 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 two. St- it's like the first story again. And, yeah. And, but and like the second story. Yeah. yeah. It's, the thing that I here's my theory. My theory is that these are just animals. All these guys actually are just wandering in the desert with their animals. But the first guy, the one with the gazelle, is like smart. And he's like, he's the one that comes up with this plan. And he's like, okay, I'm going to tell this incredible story about this gazelle that he's making up on the spot. And he does a great job of it. And the second guy's like, oh, yeah, that is great. And he's also really smart and really good. And he tells, like, this amazing tale. And it's, like, about the brothers and whatever. Maybe some of it's based on his own life experience. But it's, like, these dogs actually are just dogs. And then they're both kind of, like, looking and, like, nudging the, like, kind of slower, dim-witted third guy. And he's like, oh, yeah, um, this this mule is um, – and he's just thinking of the elements that he's heard from the other two guys' <laughs> stories. He's like, it's my wife. And, um, yeah, she she cheated on me. So then we turned her into, into a mule. The end. <laughs> like, he was just, like, trying to play his part because his is by far, like, the worst. But he's, like, you know, just taking the elements from the other thing and going along. And these really are just – regular animals but because they live in this world of magic it's plausible that they could have really been transformed magically okay so jeff i'm absolutely like beside myself that you i had had like a similar thought where i was like what if these are just animals and these guys are coming up with like these crazy stories about it Uh but then what i find super fascinating is that the only person in this story whose animal does anything to corroborate their story is the third is the man last story. guy. Yeah. His mule, it doesn't say anything, but it says that like, oh, it kind of like nods its head when he asks him a question, which again, you can kind of take as yeah. evidence or not evidence. But let me read to you something from the Arabian Nights, a companion. So In this book, they talked about how there is a book that was written 
that was talking about the... Okay, so there is a man who wrote a book called Unveiling of Secrets. And this is a a 13th century work in Iraq. And in this Unveiling of Secrets, this book called Unveiling of Secrets, what this man was doing was he was recording tricks that kind of the the like street entertainers would employ against people. So this is a man writing about real life in Iraq in the 13th century. He was living there at the time when he wrote this. In my book, The Arabian Nights, when they're talking about it, it says, in one chapter devoted to the frauds of the Banu Sasan, the author relates how when he was in the city of Haran, he saw an ape whose master had trained it to make the human gesture of salutation to perform the ritual oblations to pray and to weep. The ape's master then brought the ape, accompanied by a retinue of servants in Indian costume, to the mosque, where the ape performed the ablutions and the prayer. When the curious in the congregation pressed him to explain this wonder, the ape's master replied that this was in truth no ape, but an Indian prince. The king, who was his father, had married off the prince to a princess. All had gone well in the marriage until the prince's wife became jealous, suspecting that he had fallen in love with a slave girl. His protestations were useless, and in a rage, she used a spell to turn him into an ape. Ever since that moment, the prince has wandered the world in this unhappy form. The ape's master then took a collection on behalf of the prince. Then he and his team (laughs) exited from town. So it says, although the author of the unveiling of secrets claims to have been an eyewitness to all this, it bears a certain affinity with the second dervish's tale and the knights, which is not this tale that we told. It's another tale within Mm -hmm. the knights. It is an open question whether the knight's story inspired the confident trickster or vice versa. And I thought that was so interesting because even though inside of the Arabian Nights, it doesn't mention like this story. I had thought this to myself that I was like, what if these guys are just lying to the djinn? Yeah. And it's like, and these are just regular animals they're walking with. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought of too, like, you know, there, there's that like shoe bill stork or whatever. Oh my gosh. You've seen, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen the video on the internet, but it's like, it's at some zoo or something where it's like, it's trained to like bow to people. Like, so if you bow to it, it'll bow back. So I'm like wondering, like, you know, if, you know, like, you know how your animals react sometimes. Like if you say something to like your dog, you know, it's going to do something. And so he was like, it's a thing that he always talks to his mules like, oh, isn't that right, buddy? And the mule has just been kind of conditioned to go like, mm. exactly. and he just thinks it's funny. And yeah. so he knew that like his story could be garbage, but then he could be like, isn't that right, buddy? And it's like, mm. as mules like, yep, that's me. <laughs> when it doesn't matter, you know, and who cares if it is, but like to me, that adds like a really funny flavor to it. Yeah. And it plays into the theme of, Scheherazade being a trickster herself and like purposefully doing things like saving like literally the very last like paragraph of a story till the next (laughs) night to buy time to get into another story that she'll have, you know, several nights to tell. Yeah, that it's like they might be tricksters and she's a trickster. But it is unclear because obviously they're talking to a djinn. So it's like there is magic in this world. So it's like it could very well be true that all this stuff happened. And because of like, you know, the religion aspect of it and fate and God and all that stuff, just as he was saying like, oh, it must have been God's will that I accidentally killed your son because I wasn't intending to. 
It also might have been God's will that these men who had these, who all happen to have these fantastic stories, came there so that they could save this man for his like piety of being true to his word. He could have gone and never come back and like lived, but he he was true to his word and he came back. And that's the type of thing that, you know, like God would want to reward, you know what I mean? By putting these things into place or something. Again, I'm probably reading too much into it, yeah. but it's like. But yeah, like you said, the, it, it's like it, it can serve a dual purpose, basically, depending on like if you as the storyteller wanted to talk about how God brings people together or whatever, and yeah. how like things are fated to be, which is a huge theme that is running throughout the whole nights is yeah. what is fated to be will be. Yeah. Like you could go hard talking about that aspect. Or if you think it's funny that they're tricking them, there's elements that you could put in there conceivably to make it a little more obvious that like that they are just messing with them. And that too is stuff that happens in the night. So you wouldn't be far off like either way, depending on how you as a storyteller kind of like wanted to play that. Yeah. But going, going back to, cause I, I do want us to like keep kind of like a running tally in total of like the women. I just absolutely loved that you clued into this thing that I myself thought was interesting and suspect. And then I also knew that I had a quote, inside of <laughs> the book yeah so i was like oh that worked out perfect but going perfect. back but going back to the women so yeah it's the first story there is the bad wife and but you also had the concubine who was kind of like she was just a woman who had a baby with him like in the story like i i she's kind of neither good nor bad in in yeah what we hear probably mostly good and the interesting thing about that too is though, like it, it still mirrors the story of Abraham and Ishmael. Yeah. And that it wasn't his first wife who was not able to have a child. He had the child with the second wife, and then he favored that son, and it was like his favorite son. You know, it's like it mirrors the whole thing with the the festival that they bring up later too, which is like fascinating. Yeah. So, and then you have that good young daughter that ends up becoming the the son's wife mm-hmm. who and you did point this out in the middle of the story and you're like maybe we'll bring this up later and i do want to talk about it that she said kind of like in that spell that she did that it was like whatever is god's will if if, yeah. if you have always been in this form stay in this form but if you have another form by god's will turn back into your form it is very important in the story that she says something to that effect so that she is not labeled as like a witch yeah, or like a sorceress yeah. that what she is doing is very much in line with. It's like, like the will of God and like the power of God. Yeah. But then it also goes back into punishing the right person for a yeah. crime because in the end she does use her magic. She does use the power that she has to punish the right person. Right. So the people who deserve to be punished in the story were punished. Yeah. So in the second story, you had the Jenna like wife who was good. She even was obedient to her husband, even when she wanted to stand up for him and punish his brothers. Yeah. And, and it was just her, uh, her tricky little sister, uh, <laughs> not little sister. I don't know if it was older or younger, but her sister who was like, I'm not bound to listen to your husband. He's not my husband. I can do what I want with his brothers. Yeah. And so and is, she didn't, 
they still didn't kill him, which is all he asked. He didn't say, don't punish them. He just said, spare them, don't kill them, which is what she wanted to do. Yeah, and again, the right people in that story got punished. And the interesting thing about that, too, is, like, they were punished with, like, they they were given a sentence, you know, 10 years of time as a dog, maybe that they'll learn their lesson and given, like, another chance after that. So yeah. they weren't killed. They had this other punishment, but also with the possibility of maybe they can learn and get better and we can turn them back into humans and maybe they'll be better humans for this punishment, which for is, you know, more just than just straight up murdering them. Yeah. So then what I do find really interesting about the story of the third old man or the old man and the mule, I titled it the old man and the mule inside of my copy. It's called the story of the third old man and other stories. It's the story of the third sheik. So again, they all have different titles and it's very complicated to try to hunt down what story people are talking about. And where to find it. So that's why I just list all of them. But anyway, the wife in that story cheats on her husband, which mirrors what happened to Shariar, the king, mm-hmm. and his brother being yeah. cheated on, which yeah. I am like that. It's such a dangerous story to be telling to a man who that kind of a theme of a story hits really close to home. But in the story, a woman, the butcher's daughter, was able to punish the right person for the crime. I didn't think about that. I mean, I did think about it a little bit when it talks about like, oh, caught him in bed with a slave. I was like, that's exactly what happened to the to Shariar's brother that led him to come and visit his brother when he was like all depressed. And also, you know, his wife was not just cheating on him with one slave, but having big old orgies with a bunch of slaves. But yeah, it's like, maybe that's the thing. Like she knew in the meta story of her telling this story, she knew that, yeah, this isn't as amazing of a story as the others, as far as being like fantastical and the things that happened. But this is the most meaningful and important for my audience to hear. For the king, my husband, yeah. who is trying to punish me for something that another woman did, this is the thing that's important for him to hear. Someone got cheated on who was very angry about it, and he was able to punish her with the help of another woman who is good, just like you could have other good women enter your life like perhaps me <laughs> who can help can you help heal. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, help, help you bring goodness and value into your life and learn how to punish the right people. So it is interesting. It's like, it's a lame story within the story, but then when you go back out to the main story, the fact that it hits so close to home does make it, like you said, an especially dangerous and interesting and important story for her to tell, which is like, these are so sophisticated. I can't imagine how people are like, Oh, this is just gutter trash stories because it's like the layers, the way they all work together, the different color, you know, the the different implications based on which perspective, which layered perspective you're looking at it through makes you look at it in a different way. It's just like so great. Yeah. And so moving away from 
like from those those three sets of stories, ultimately you have like the merchant and the Ginny because you have the Ginny who's about to punish a man who did not deserve what he was getting because it was like, it was an accident. He couldn't see that Efret's like son when he hit and he him. He didn't realize that a, even if he did, he wouldn't think that a date pit would <laughs> would be the thing kill him instantly. <laughs> yes, and so he was about to be punished for something, and he even was like willingly going to like that punishment because he was like, you know what, I took a life. I guess I should, you know, just I promised I would come back, and I'm following through with that promise, and so he's like being rewarded by those three men's stories, he is being rewarded and saved because these other guys were like, you don't deserve this. Yeah. And so it's really interesting how like, you know, these stories are covering like who deserves to be punished and who doesn't. Yeah. To ultimately save this man's life, who from my perspective does not deserve to be punished from this. Yeah. And the same thing, like Scheherazade does not deserve to be punished for something that she didn't even do. Yeah. Yeah. Just like all like all the women in that yeah, town like did not deserve to be punished for. And she willingly, like the guy in the story, willingly went to the king to accept her fate that she felt like she didn't deserve with a plan to try to subvert it, of course. And you know, even in in the story of the merchant, he wasn't the one that did it, but you know, it was subverted by these other people telling stories, which again is what Scheherazade is doing as well. Exactly. And so it's like, I can absolutely see why Masin Mahdi thought that, you know, there's evidence of like a single author, especially in like the first like 280 nights, like a single author who was writing with like a purpose and, you know, was was moving towards like, you know, a singular goal. Because mm-hmm. like what we just looked at and said, oh, this looks like that there's a single purpose. It feels like there is a single purpose. And now I'm going to read a quote to completely undermine what we have been talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So inside of the Arabian Nights, a companion, it says all the manuscripts, both Syrian and Egyptian have three old men who offer to tell amazing stories to the jinn in order to save a merchant's life. However, None of the Syrian manuscripts give the third old man's story, while manuscripts in the Egyptian tradition do. If the Egyptian manuscripts were right in including a third old man's tale, perhaps they were also right in including other material. So as much as we just went into that third story saying, oh, Obviously, you know, this this serves this narrative purpose. We can like you and I both just were like, oh, yeah, it very well like fits in. Except that in the Syrian manuscript, that 280 nights, when you get down to like kind of like that material down to that mother uh, source that we were talking about in the Syrian manuscripts, that third story isn't even there. Oh, man. And so the the one that's included in the Egyptian manuscripts 
it fits so well in there with the other material. Yeah. Because the thing that's interesting about that to me is like the interesting nature of the fact that if it was added later, going back to the Black Mirror analogy. Yeah. Someone loves Black Mirror, right? Someone they does, watch I guess. it. No. They watch it over and over and over. They've seen every episode. They see how it works. They understand it. And they're like, you know what? I want to make my own episode of Black Mirror. And they do it really well, keeping with the themes and adding on to it in a way that makes it, you know, like in their minds, like an even richer thing, which I think it makes even more sense in this context where it really is. We've talked about these stories that came in from all over the place. It is a a thing that was like just cobbled together from all these different sources. So it makes sense that people would add stories that they think reinforce the ideas that they were getting out of it into it to just further like enrich the experience of these thousand and one nights. So it's like, yeah, it's a bummer that the original one doesn't, but it's like, but the one that we have and we experience does and our experience and our conversation today about it was better because of it. It wasn't one of those ones that really threw it off and is like, okay, you know what? We can ignore this one because it like is really going off the rails. Like we can say like, no, you know what? I like this and I'm going to choose to include it because Again, what's the point of telling stories to one another is like to get something from it, to learn something from it. And I think whether this was added later or not, it's like it really adds to the experience for me as the person retelling it and listening to it in the United States in 2021, which I feel like is totally appropriate for how folklore works. Yeah. No, what I also love about like that little tidbit of knowledge about that third story is because like when I read that third story, I was like, dude, you just retold the other two stories, but shorter and lamer. And it's like interesting to think that it might just be because somebody was like, like, oh, there should be a third story in here. It's like rule of threes. Like we have to follow the rule of threes. Why is there not a third guy? Yeah. Or they're like, oh, they said that there's a third guy, but then... They, we never hear his story. Let's just write one in. And then they just write in one like really quick that seems to like match the theme or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But then it also trips up like what we had said about, or it, it doesn't trip up, but it, it makes the discussion more interesting about like how we said the only animal who ever seemed to kind of give any acknowledgement that maybe they were magical or like a human turned into a, was that third one, that mule. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like, wait, did somebody add that in later and they didn't understand that the punchline was that none of those animals were magical? Or, you know, yeah. like, it just, it it goes into that of like, wait, is this supposed to be here? What does it mean if it, if this story gets taken out? What if it means if this story was original? Like, it, it complicates the question when you're yeah. analyzing it. yeah. Which is why they're like, I don't want complications in analyzing it. I want <laughs> I want to know that it was one author and what it looked like as a medieval text. Yeah. And, and it's like the complications make it difficult, but also make it fun. So we'll live with them. And so it's conflicting information like that that makes it so hard to say whether or not there was ever supposed to be kind of one singular message or theme or whatever that was like inside of the night or whether it was just a collection of tales 
And we're just making those connections ourselves because human brains love to look for patterns and meaning. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash the fairy tellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. Just now I wanted to say bless you for you yawning, but that makes no sense. What do you say to somebody who's yawning? Not excuse you, because it's not disgusting. You just politely ignore it, I guess. I don't oh, know. Oh, well, absolute fail by me. <laughs> I'm like, you're yawning. What do I say? Am I boring you? That's what most people say. (laughs) Am I boring you? Well, I know that can't be it.